Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts and minds be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Upon first reading the parable that we heard earlier, it's difficult to avoid interpreting it in a straightforward manner. In part, this is because the plot sounds so very predictable, even for those with very little knowledge of the Bible. We have come to know the Pharisee and the tax collector as stock characters in Jesus' parables. On the one hand, we have the self-satisfied, rule-bound religious leader who lacks compassion and awareness. On the other hand, we have the remorseful, modest, and self-effacing tax collector. Listeners of Jesus' day would have had a different understanding of Pharisees and tax collectors from ours, though. It's not surprising that the setting for this parable is the temple. At the temple, you are acutely aware of who you are, what status you have, and what you can come to expect from God. The temple has defined lines around who is an insider and who is an outsider. So it is expected to see the Pharisee in the temple, while it would be quite a surprise to see the tax collector. The Pharisees were a select few prior to the destruction of the second temple in Jerusalem. They educated their Jewish kin on how to take their tradition and the Torah seriously. They shared how to live out faith in ways that touched daily lives, such as the belief that the household dinner table was a community of worship, that the handling of every dish, every piece of food was a religious act. Each act had an intentionality and significance to it. Roman violence devastated institutions of Jewish life with the destruction of the Second Temple. And the Pharisaic tradition of teaching and living was a force behind the survival of the Jewish people. So the listeners of Jesus' day would have held a general high regard for the Pharisee. And so it would not be a surprise to see the Pharisee at the temple that day. The Pharisee sets himself apart, perhaps so others can hear him. He extols the prayer, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even this tax collector, I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all of my income. Now everything that the Pharisee says in his prayer happens to be true. He obeys the commandments, he fasts, 
he tithes. And the Pharisee gives thanks to God for his righteousness, but he cites his own honorable, honorable behavior as the source of that righteousness. It almost comes across as if he feels the need to remind God just how fortunate that God is to have a devout worshiper like him. Not only does the Pharisee boast of his piety, but he does so at the expense of tearing others down. He comes across as arrogant, almost to the point of loathing others. And in his mind, there are two kinds of people in this world, good and bad, right and wrong, righteous and unjustified, saved and not saved. And he sees the justification as a characteristic of himself rather than a characteristic of God. Now let's be clear here. The issue is not the Pharisee's piety or his faithful religious observance. It's his failure to see his dependence upon God. And in doing so, he misses the true nature of his blessing, God's love and mercy. Now, the ancient Palestinian tax collector in Pharisee's parable would not be reminiscent of today's IRS agents. They were franchisees of a corrupt political and economic system that devoured the poor and stuffed the wealthy. Tax collectors frequently were seen as collaborators with the Roman Empire. Each tax collector was assigned a certain district. They were responsible for collecting a prefixed tax from the residents within that area. They then paid the empire that fixed amount. And they had the freedom to extract the money from their neighbors in whichever ways they preferred. And whatever money they collected beyond what they owed the empire, they got to keep as their own profit. Often tax collectors farmed out responsibilities to others, thereby constructing a pyramid scheme of greed. So here we find the tax collector also at the temple, standing on the margin, but he's beating his breast. In ancient Near East cultures, the beating of one's breast was usually associated with women rather than men. It's almost as if there's a side note to underscore the tax collector's unexpected behavior. And the tax collector shouts, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. His head is bent, his words are simple, and we're not quite sure what the impetus for his plea might be, whether it comes from a place of desperation or repentance. And he might not be so wrong to be so critical of himself 
it's very well possible that he has done some awful, awful things. However, he doesn't cast his judgment upon others, but upon himself. This sinner has clarity that the pious don't. He knows that he is completely dependent upon God. His hope lies in God and upon God's mercy alone. Luke ends the parable by saying, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled and all who humble themselves will be exalted. Knowing a bit more about the social location of the Pharisee and the tax collector during Jesus's day casts some new light on this parable for us. No longer can we just see them as biblical literary tropes. This parable lends a new variation of Jesus' vision for the kingdom of God, in which some are last who will be first, and some who are first will be last. This gospel parable calls for sight beyond the external an insight beyond the expected. And when we read this parable, it's hard for us not to insert ourselves into the narrative. And it's our instinct to want to identify with the positively portrayed characters. We want to believe that we are humble, that we see God as the source of love and mercy in our lives, and we are justified. And indeed, sometimes we are. But we would be kidding ourselves if we didn't feel any guilt in hearing this parable. For who has not had a moment when you have judged too quickly? Or when we compare ourselves to others based upon the assumption that our faith, our religiosity, our ethics, our orientation to the world is more informed, more educated, more thoughtful. Have you ever thought or said, I cannot possibly understand what this person is thinking. I cannot even begin to understand where this person is coming from. I cannot fathom how they, as Christians, can vote for that candidate. I know I do, all of the time. Unfortunately, this divisive and corrosive rhetoric has become all too familiar in this conflict-ridden season of American life. And we hear it from folks on both sides of the political aisle. It happens when we lead with our religious identities, our political convictions, or ethical stances upon meeting others, instead of leading with love and compassion. As preacher and professor Carolyn Lewis observes, 
The funny thing about faith is that it doesn't work that way. Because as soon as someone points out the inadequacies of others, we would do well to remember this passage. And as soon as the justification of another is easily determined, we would do well to remember this passage. As soon as we think we know whether someone deserves a place in the kingdom, we would do well to remember this passage. It is a sad reality of the human condition that all too often in the face of our own fears, our own default reaction is entrenchment, self-justification. Our insecurity in our future all too often turns into certainty about the fate of the other. Our justification gets caught up in our own self-righteousness rather than trust in God's love. Now, I'm not saying that we don't stand up and speak out in the face of bigotry, racism, sexism, xenophobia, Islamophobia. As Christians, we are called to speak truth in the name of love. This parable, however, teaches us that the invitation to enter into the kingdom of God shows up when we least expect it. For wherever we draw a line, God is on the other side. And this not only goes for passing judgment on others, it also goes for passing judgment on ourselves. For each of us has a little bit of a Pharisee and a little bit of a tax collector within us. Sometimes we're virtuous and sometimes we're self-righteous. Sometimes we're crooked, sometimes we're honest. Sometimes we're deplorable, sometimes we are just, sometimes we are right, sometimes we are wrong. We always fall short, and that is just part of being human. Anytime we draw a line, God is on the other side. Nadia Bowles Weber is the founding pastor of the House for All Sinners and Saints, a Lutheran mission church in Denver. She's a leading voice in the emergent church movement. And she tells a story about how her own alternative understanding of church was challenged. When her church started out, her congregants were what you might describe as hip, urban young adults. About two years after she planted her church, the Denver Post ran a front page above the folds story about Nadia preaching at Easter. They only had about 40 to 45 members at that time. But overnight, the house for all sinners and saints had doubled in size. And Nadia really struggled with this spike in attendance. She reflects, I freaked out. They could show up at any mainline Protestant church in the city and see a room full of people that look just like them. So why are they coming here? 
We were excited because we were really struggling to grow. But these were the wrong kind of people. I mean, it was the wrong kind of difference for us. Some churches might freak out if drag queens show up. But these were bankers, wearing dockers. So she decided to schedule a meeting to talk about the demographic change in their community. They had a meeting, and Nadia told the newcomers about the church's history. And the newcomers, in turn, told who they were and why they were there. And at the end of the meeting, Asher, a longtime member of the House of All Sinners and Saints, said, look, as the young transgender kid who was welcomed into this community, I just want to go on record as saying, I am glad that there are people who look like my mom and dad here because they love me in a way that my mom and my dad can't. Anytime we draw a line, God is on the other side. Paul Tillich, a theologian who taught at Harvard, once commented on Paul's claim that the gospel is a stumbling block. He asserted that the danger is stumbling over the wrong thing. So this parable isn't about a, pi a pious Pharisee or a humble tax collector. It's a story about the nature of God and God's mercy. For God alone can judge the human heart. Our vision of the world is too small. Anytime we draw a line, God is on the other side. And any time that we draw the circle wide, God will draw, draw, God will draw it wider still. And that is good news indeed. Amen.